That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you not the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to him, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The famous Southern author, Flannery O'Connor, once said of the South, she said this about religion and Christianity in the South. She said, while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. Now, in context, she was just simply responding to a question about, hey, how can Southern writers write so well when it concerns Christianity and religion? And that was her explanation. But as someone who grew up, a a son of the South, and as someone who pastors in the South, I find that to be a very accurate description of Christianity in the South. There there is a familiarity with Jesus in the South. There is is really a deadly, uh, I believe, a deadly familiarity with Jesus in the South. The, The large majority of people we meet from day to day have had some type of experience with Jesus. Maybe it's a Jesus who they tried for a while, but it just didn't take. They may say something like, oh, I've been there and I've done the Jesus thing and it it just didn't work for me. Or maybe it's a Jesus who they met long ago that made them feel safe about their eternity. That he was kind of a a therapeutic Jesus that that made them feel good about what's going to happen to them when they die. 
but he has no continuing ramifications in their life. And they may have the attitude of, oh, I've already done that. I already know Jesus. Me and and Jesus, we are okay. But the question everyone in the South and around the world needs to answer is this, is have I met and put my faith in the real and complete Jesus? The Jesus who changes everything. This is important for the, uh, for the unbeliever who, who needs to know if they're deceiving themselves, if they're, they're thinking that they've met the Jesus, but what they've met is a Jesus. What the Scriptures might call an antichrist, that's, that, that maybe someone might call Jesus, but he, he really isn't the real thing, the, the, the complete Jesus. And it's also important for the believer to know the real and complete Jesus because 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So our spiritual growth is determined as Christians on making Christ our true north, right? And heading towards Him. And if we don't have an accurate picture of the real and complete Jesus, our spiritual growth is going to be stunted even as a Christian. And so in our text that was just read, we meet two disciples that had a familiarity with Jesus. But through a secret meeting of not really knowing it was Jesus and Jesus teaching them who He really was, they came in contact with the real Jesus, the complete picture of who Jesus was and what he had come to do and that changed everything about these two men so these two disciples were missing the real and complete Jesus they were missing the real and complete Jesus who are these two men well these two men they're called disciples but they're not uh, numbered among the remaining 11 disciples so in other words uh, we know from the New Testament that that Jesus had disciples and then he had the 11, or he had the 12 disciples. At this point, there's 11 because Judas had betrayed Jesus. And so these men were kind of what you might call a peripheral disciple, someone that, that was somewhat familiar with Jesus. They had, li- had likely been to Jerusalem for Passover and had witnessed all the events that had tr- transpired with the death of this person that, that they had begun to put a lot of hope in and a lot of, a lot of their life into. When I, what I find myself asking is were these two men that, that believe, had believed in Jesus fully and just because of the events they just saw, they're really trying to make sense because it, it just they haven't seen that complete picture yet and so they're just confused. Or are they... Are they disciples and people that have begun to learn that's what disciple means they've they've been under the teaching of Christ but they had not quite fully developed that full mature saving belief in the real and complete Jesus and I think it's hard to come up with a definitive answer from the text of were these men believers or were these men unbelievers that that hadn't quite come around yet and here's what we do know that in this moment, they existed in a space between hope and despair. That on one hand, they had really, really liked Jesus. They had been around Him, and they had, as the Scripture says here, they had begun to put some hope into Him. 
So there's hope there. But that man that they had put all this hope in was rotting in a tomb. It was a man that they had just seen tortured brutally and die before their very eyes and, and put in a tomb. And he was therefore rotting in the grave, or so they thought. Ironically, the very man that they were speaking of and they were talking about the events of what they just saw, that very man comes sidling up next to him on the road. And he begins to say, hey, what's the news? What's the word on the street? And a supernatural thing happens here because we would not, would we not think it's strange if they didn't notice? Like, you're saying you're a disciple of Jesus, but you're not even knowing that that's who's talking to you, we see that a supernatural event takes place where it says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. And so for God's purposes and God's uh, teaching them, whatever reason, uh, he, had, he had blinded their eyes where they were not able to recognize that this is Jesus. This is who we are right now talking about and trying to work through what we've seen Let's look at some of the things going on in their hearts and mind that had been keeping them from fully understanding the real and complete Jesus. First, they missed the real Jesus because they did not understand His identity. They didn't understand His identity. They identified Jesus as a prophet, mighty indeed. Now, is that wrong? No, that's not wrong. Jesus called Himself a prophet in Luke when He says, um, a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. So he called himself a prophet. And so that's not wrong, but it's certainly not complete, right, of who he was. Even the Muslims will allow Jesus the, the term prophet. Did you know that? They don't have a problem with, 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 with people calling Jesus a prophet. They reject everything else about him. They surely reject the, the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection. But hey, we'll give you prophet. Jesus had some great things to say, so he was a prophet. And Jesus has been called many things to people who hate him. He's been called a lunatic, a con man, a liar. To people who respect him, he's been called a good teacher, a good man, and, and even a prophet. But to those who have truly believed in Him, He is called their Savior and their Lord. It is not enough to embrace one aspect of the identity of Jesus and calling Him, hey, He's a good teacher. Or man, He was a really great guy. He did some miracles. He, he healed people. No, we have to embrace all of who He is, especially His deity and His identity as the Son of God. And not only did they miss his identity fully, they missed the real Jesus because they did not fully understand his mission. They go on, they say this in verse 20, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. We see from, from these two sentences that, uh, that these two well-meaning men had absolutely missed the main mission of Christ. Or at least the means by which He was going to accomplish that mission. They speak of the crucifixion and then they say, sadly, but we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. 
These two, like many of his followers, thought that his mission, that Jesus' mission was to achieve political power, to overthrow Rome and to, to reinstate the throne of David and to set upon it and to physically at that time, in that moment, rule in righteousness in a political kingdom. But if those who were around him had only listened, they would have realized that the mission was very different from that. Jesus said back in Luke 9.22, it says, And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Luke 18.32, For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And so these two peripheral disciples had missed the point. They missed the mission. But we can't be too hard on them. For those in the, in the inner 11, remaining 11 disciples, remember Judas is, is out of the picture now because he's, he has uh, betrayed Christ. Even they didn't get it. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, For be, far be it from you, Lord, that, you, that, that this shall ever happen to you. Now, I kind of misspoke. I, I said Peter didn't get it. Peter seems to have gotten it and just absolutely rejects it. Like, okay, you're saying that you're going to have to die? That's not going to happen, Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. He talks about, hey, you set your mind on the things of the flesh. Your mind is not thinking of my mission correctly. Isn't it amazing that the suffering of Christ on the cross is the central act of redemption, but these men were sad and they were horrified because they thought that that bloody death on the cross had negated their hope for redemption. They even say, it's been three days. These things happen. He's been dead for three days. Game over. He, he must not have been the guy. But what they will soon find is that Christ's death did not render His redemption impotent. On the contrary, Christ's death was central to redemption. If man's greatest need was to be free from Rome, all Jesus would have done was to speak and the huge armies of Rome would have been wiped out. Every political figure, uh, uh, figurehead in Rome would have died instantly, and then he could have took up his throne. But that was not man's greatest need. If man's greatest need was moral teaching, then Jesus could have lived a very long life, preached a lot more sermons, maybe written a lot of books, and died an old man safely and warm in his bed with a lot of great moral teaching that he's distributed. That wasn't man's greatest need. 
If man's greatest need was physical healing, Christ could have just kept walking the earth, touching everyone that was sick until there was no more sickness. But that wasn't man's greatest need. Man's greatest need was to be removed from the wrath of God. Because all mankind fell in Adam's sin and all of us sinned. And so we are in rebellion to God. So our greatest need is not political freedom. It is freedom from our sin. And that is what Christ did. That was His mission. That's why He came to the cross. To take on Himself our sins and to receive the wrath of God for those sins. We needed a substitute to live the life we could not live and to die the death we deserve to remove the condemnation of God from us. That was His mission. They missed the real Jesus because they were slow to believe. Jesus rebukes them in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He rebukes them for their slow belief. They, they knew Jesus. They knew Him enough that He had to supernaturally block His identity from them. He, they had heard enough of His teaching and they had seen enough of His miracles to identify Him as a prophet that was mighty in deed and word. But despite what they had seen, they were having trouble coming to a mature belief in Christ. Make no mistake. All belief is not created equal. James 2.19 is clear on that when it says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. There's a belief that demons have. It's not a belief that saves them. Again, we don't really know where these guys are on that belief scale, if you will. Did they believe that Jesus was good but had not reached that mature belief that saves? Had they reached a, a belief that saved but were just... In this moment, just struggling with what they had seen and, and needed Jesus to help them put it together. Again, one thing we know is that they had not yet reached a rock-solid belief that gave them full assurance and hope in their redemption. And I would encourage us all to examine our own belief and to ask ourselves if we are being slow to believe. And ask ourselves, do we have a genuine faith that gives us genuine assurance and a hope in our redemption? Or is it a feeble belief that's simply there just to make you feel good about death that's coming for you eventually? Listen to me, belief that, that he simply existed or that he thought, taught and did nice things is not the kind of belief that can fully save you. That, or the, it's not the kind of belief that can save you. Belief in a family deity does not save. Belief that, hey, grandma liked Jesus, 
mom and dad like Jesus, so I guess I like Jesus. That's not a belief that saves. Belief that does not change you has not saved you. I want you to think about that for a minute. Belief that has not changed you has not saved you. He may say, well, I was saved at eight. There was not a lot of gross sin in my life. And so it's hard for me to think about that. I think the question you need to ask yourself is, has my belief had lifelong continuing ramifications, right? Maybe there wasn't a lot that, that had to change at eight, even though you were a vile sinner then. You hadn't been able to act out a lot of that stuff in your heart. But has there been a lifelong, uh, has, has there been a belief with lifelong continuing ramifications? The belief that saves is a personal belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ that, to believe that, that He was who the Bible says He was. To believe not just that He died, but that He died for your sins and that He rose so that you might have life. Trusting Him alone for your salvation. That would be a belief that changes everything. So, having looked at where these men were and, and how they had struggled to believe fully, Jesus reveals the full reality of who He is and what He had come to do. What Jesus is going to do is present to them the complete picture of Himself. The real Jesus. He's going to take un very sad, uncertain men and He's going to transform them into men that have hearts on fire and men that have absolute 100% confidence in their salvation and the fact of the resurrection. And how does he do this, though? How does he make such a drastic transformation? Does he suddenly, at, at the very first moment here, raise up the veil of, of supernatural covering that he has and, and say, Here I am, look at the nails. Come here and touch the side. I mean, he, he does this with other disciples. That's not what he does. He takes them to the Scriptures. And he fills in the gaps of their understanding so that they may see the complete and real Jesus. Verses 25-27, it says, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Jesus revealed His real identity and His real mission. It says, You're slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. If you write in your Bible, circle all. Underline all. These men had zeroed in on one aspect of the Messiah. The Messiah was going to sit on David's throne, and that must mean he's going to come here in political force, and he's going to overthrow the government, and he's going to sit on David's throne and fix it all right now. And they fixated themselves so, so much that they totally missed the other aspects like 
the fact that he would accomplish all this by first coming as the suffering servant, as the suffering uh, lamb of God to pay for the sins of his people. So they had no category in their mind to process the suffering death of the Messiah, even though the prophets had talked at length about his death. When we come to Christ, we don't come to Christ like we do a buffet. We don't come to Christ and say, I like that. I don't like that. I don't, I'm going to leave that. I'm going to take that. And, and that I do not like. Some want a humble servant. Some want the humble servant on the donkey. It's riding in on Palm Sunday, right? Or, uh, uh, um, yeah, Palm Sunday. He's riding in on Palm Sunday. And he's a servant, and he's, he's gentle, and he's literally about to lay down his life in love for his people. Some people want that. Others won't. I, mean, I, I like the conquering Jesus. I like the Jesus on the white horse that's riding through the streets, cutting people down so badly that blood's running through the streets. And the reality is, is that he's both. At the end of time, he's going to have been both. And you can't just pick, oh, I like the loving Jesus, but I don't like the wrathful Jesus, because He is both. We don't pick and choose what we want of Him. Probably the most common in our context is, is, is what people do in, in that they want Jesus as Savior, but they don't want Him as Lord. I want this salvation you got, Jesus. I, I want to I go see Granddad. I want to go see Mom. So I want you to save me, but don't tell me what to do. Okay? I want your salvation, but I don't want you Lord of my life. I want to just, I want, I want heaven, and I don't want to have to do anything the rest of my life. I just want to live my life the way I want to live it. But you cannot take Jesus as Savior without, in some meaningful way, take Him as your Lord. If over time Jesus makes no difference in your life, it's time to look at whether or not you truly believed in the real Jesus. Or just a Jesus that you made up. And you may say, Adam, you keep using this phrase, the real Jesus. But who are you to tell me who the real Jesus is? I'm nobody. Don't listen to one idea I have about Jesus that is not derived from the Scriptures. Because this is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus revealed Himself through all of the Scripture. Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted them in all the Scriptures. So circle that all too. All the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. We don't determine who we want Jesus to be because if you have a Jesus that fits so neatly in your little box, you don't have the real Jesus. You have an idol. You have an idol of your own making. You've just called Him Jesus. You've given, given Him that name. Scripture reveals who the real Jesus is. Not, not our fancy. 
And wouldn't it have been amazing to hear Jesus walk these guys through the Old Testament? Because this is, at this time, this, this is what these scriptures are talking about, the Old Testament, because the New Testament was still to come. But wouldn't it have been amazing to, to see where all Jesus went through all the scriptures? You go to Genesis and, and talk about, hey, you see the promised seed here? That, that the serpent's going to strike the heel of the seed, but that heel's going to come down and crush the serpent's head. That's what just happened. What you think was defeat, that's what just happened because Jesus did. The, the, the grave that you're saying is empty. It's empty because that seed crushed the head of the serpent. Did you take them to Exodus and, and talk about the Passover lamb and say, hey, you know, Passover, what you've been doing in Jerusalem, and what, what, what we do every year as, as Jewish people, and we, we, we remember that Passover lamb that was sacrificed and that blood that was placed over the doorpost so that death would come through and pass over? That's what you just saw fulfilled in the Lamb of God. He was the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover lamb. You just saw it, guys. Do you take them to Leviticus where most of us bail in our yearly Bible readings, right? Do you walk them through all the pictures of the blood and, and the picture of sin and how there's this huge separation that exists between a holy God and sinful man and, and to say, but the blood bridges that guy that that divide and you just saw that blood shed and that's what was happening all those levitical laws were being fulfilled in jesus and surely surely he took them to isaiah and isaiah's prophet prophecy of the suffering servant when he said when it was written isaiah wrote surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep uh, that before its shearers are silent. So he opened not his mouth. I mean, surely, maybe by this moment, these, these two disciples begin to get it and say, that, that looks a lot like what we just saw. That looks exactly like what we just saw. And so now let's look at how these men begin to change in this whole process of moving from sad, hopeless doubters to absolute, joyful, confident Christ believers. What changed? What began to change? As the two disciples encounter the real Jesus, everything begins to change for them. First, their hearts began to burn with hope. Now, uh, Later in the process, after, uh, after Jesus comes and eats with them, what happens is uh, he blesses the food, and then he disappears. He, he, they, begin, they, they suddenly see who he is, and then he disappears. And this is what's said in that moment. 
did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So by their later testimony, they're kind of filling us in on, on what was happening, that as they were listening to Jesus, they weren't just like, oh, well, well, maybe that's the case. It says our hearts were beginning to burn within us, that that, that hopelessness that we were feeling about, man, maybe he wasn't really it, just began to burn away with the hope that yes, yes, he was. Now it's starting to make sense. He, he was to suffer. He was to rise from the dead. As they began to see the real Jesus and the full reality of His mission, all the sad, sadness and hopelessness began to be burnt away by the hope of the real Jesus. And next we see that they gained a hunger for more hope through Jesus. In verse 29, uh, it, it talks about that, that he's about to, it kind of makes it look like he's about to, to go on ahead and, and leave them, right? And verse 29 says, But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went into, in to stay with them. So we see that with this burning uh, in their hearts was a desire for more. Now this, uh, this, this word translated, they urged him strongly, is actually a word that means constraint. They were constraining him. Now, am I saying they kidnapped Jesus? No. But I'm saying if Jesus had not voluntarily gone, they might have. They were that desperate for more of that burning hope that he had awakened in their heart. Folks, that is what happens when you come in contact with the real Jesus. It's not something where you can say, well, that's good to know Him. I'm glad we're good now, Jesus. And to walk away from Him or to walk away from His church and just say, I'm glad I got that settled. That's not what, ha that's what happens when you meet a Jesus. What happens when you meet the real Jesus is that you want more of Him. Not that there's not, not, that there's not seasons of drought and struggles in your life and, and, and not times that you're not hungering for Him as you should. But when you look at the whole of your life, there is something that keeps coming up inside your heart and that's a hunger that you're not as close to Jesus as you want to be. And that's a great, great indicator that you've come in contact with the real Jesus. They wanted more of Him. And if you come in contact with the real Jesus, you're going to want more of Him too. And lastly, they cast all doubt aside and embrace the assurance of the risen Christ. After, after He revealed Himself, they go and they find the disciples and they say, the Lord has risen indeed. Not just, hey, the Lord, we think maybe the Lord really did rise no they say the lord has risen indeed so we see an absolute transformation from men who it says they looked sad and they were tossing around between each other the horrors horrors that they've seen and how it's a detriment to their hope and how man it happened three days ago and we've seen no pr full absolute proof yet that he's the risen savior and they're sad 
And, it, and, and then they con- come in contact with the real Jesus. And now what are they? They're saying, He's risen indeed! And joy is in their heart! And everything is changed! And they have the assurance of the risen Christ. And that is the transformation that Jesus brings to the troubled heart that comes in contact with Him. My question for you this morning is do you know, do you know, not a Jesus, but do you know the real Jesus who changes everything? I'm not asking you, did you once say a prayer? I'm not asking if your parents are good Christian people or were good Christian people. I'm not even asking you if you've been baptized once or twice. The question is, have you trusted the real Jesus of all the Scriptures? And have you trusted Him to save you from your sins? And has there been continuing ramifications in your life from putting that trust in Jesus. And if you could say yes, then, then don't wander around between hopelessness and hope. But realize that you have a Savior that has made you right before God and that no matter what's going on in your life, there's reason to hope. And if you say no, I've been familiar with Jesus, but I can't say that I've ever trusted in the real Jesus. What better time to come in contact with the real risen Jesus than on Resurrection Sunday? I'm going to ask you to please stand, and I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer as our musicians come. And I want you to just simply search your heart, to ask yourself some, some maybe some difficult questions not to make you sad on, on Easter, but to make you walk away from this place with absolute confidence that He is risen and that He's risen indeed and that you know Him. I'll be down here. I would love to talk to anyone that's not sure, that doesn't know whether or not they've come to trust Christ as Savior. Please deal with with these questions this morning as we sing. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I pray that, God, You would break hard hearts this morning, that You would just put the hooks of Your grace deep in that hard heart, God, and pull them to Yourself. God, where we live, God, sometimes there's so much confusion who Jesus was and and what He did. And God, I pray that You would clarify that in every mind here. And that everyone would know, they would know whether or not they know the real, true, complete Jesus. God, move in hearts. Do amazing things. This morning, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.